Hey, John. How you doing? Hey, Glenn. Glenn Lowry here, The Glenn Show, with John McWhorter, my regular conversation partner, The Glenn and John Show, you could say. Every other week, John and I hold forth. I'm at Brown University. He's at Columbia University. The podcast can be found where you find your podcast. Uh, there's a Glenn Lowry newsletter at Substack, and there's a YouTube channel, YouTube slash Glenn Lowry Show. So, uh, welcome back, John. It's been, it seems like a long time. Thank you, Glenn. Um, sort of, yeah. With time passing and a lot has happened. But yes, thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Okay, so uh, we talk about race with the black guys. Uh, there was a, uh, a racially motivated uh, uh, massacre in Buffalo, New York. Uh, as you have observed on other occasions, when something like this happens, people will be inclined to turn to you and I, naysayers, about uh, the woke anti-racism movement and say, you see there, you guys are asleep at the switch. Uh, this is going down in real time. There are people hunting black people in this country. There is an organized anti-black white supremacist element in our politics. It gets encouragement from um, many quarters, including from some supposedly legitimate uh, conservative politicians uh, from Fox News and so on. Uh, don't you see when an event like this happens, why it's so wrong for you to stand in the way of the anti-racism movement, for you to write books like Woke Racism, such as you have done, John? Uh, are they right? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. You know, I was... Um driving home from the airport last weekend and heard about this on the radio. And, you know, I'm sitting there and thinking about the individuals. You know, whenever anything like that happens, I think, imagine what it would have felt like to be that person who gets shot, to be one of their family members. Just what a tragedy this is, that you go to the supermarket and this happens. And the reason that it happened is because there's this white kid who hates black people. And I'm really thinking in sorrow. And I've learned to expect this. I had stuff to do, but that night I took my little visit into Twitter. You know, I don't spend my life on it the way a lot of people do, but I check a few times a day. And I thought as I opened it up, I know what this is going to be. They're going to be all of these cocky messages, mostly from white men, crowing that people like you and me are deep sixed by events like this. It's this kind of, ha ha, you said there's no racism. Well, look, what do you think that is? And, you know, you know, there is a certain kind of person, and it's not a troll. Unfortunately, it's a normal person who spends their life on Twitter being mean, which you know is fine. That's the nature of social media. But I must admit, it does rankle me a little bit that there are people out there with brains who think that you and I don't understand that bigotry of that kind exists, that or that we're downplaying it, that you know we're not as horrified by something like that as anybody else that we can't see that, you know, there's a real gun problem in this country in general. And I found myself thinking not just these people are assholes. That's not constructive. It's true. But, but I thought the main point is how we're using this word. And language is one of these things. Linguistics is a discipline where we are trained to say you cannot change the way people talk. Language changes on its own. Do not be prescriptive. And so we just described. But I must admit that with this particular word racism, I find myself straying a little bit from the linguist line. I think that to use racism to refer both to bigotry and to what people call institutional or systemic racism is so confusing to so many people that I almost wish I could wave a magic wand. If I could be kind of language czar at this point, I would say we need a new term for what people are calling systemic racism, because it sounds like bigotry and systemic inequities that correlate with race are the same thing. And you can talk about it, you can do a teach-in about it, but it's so much of a stretch that I wonder if we don't wind up talking past each other more than we should. You and I are saying that systemic racism is a concept that is hazy and that its effects are exaggerated. That has nothing to do with even something as horrible as what happened in Buffalo, it doesn't mean that we don't know that there's a such thing as racism. Part of the reason people think that is because we use this word racism to cover two extremely different things. And so I've just been thinking about that lately. It really is a problem 
this extension of racism to something so abstract and systemic, which, as I said at the Times, if we were a different language, probably there would be a whole different word for it. And notice that we're not saying that there's no such thing as structural inequities. We're just talking, I'm just talking about the words that we use. And I'm, t- I'm just tired of it. Racism is Archie Bunker. Racism is that boy in Buffalo. Systemic inequities and what you do about them should be some other word. But it's hard to find a word because we're so used to using the word racism to refer to that too. Okay, let me see if I'm following you. There, there is this um, uh, uh, ethical failing of uh, contempt for other people, uh, uh, reliance on uh, denigrating stereotypes about them, uh, visceral dislike for association with them, a hatred of them which you want to call racism and you want to preserve that word uh, and distinguish that, which is something true about the history and ongoing social reality of American society, but not perhaps as determinative of the quality of life of African-Americans as was the case in years past. You want to distinguish that from uh, environmental uh, disproportionate impact of a site of, uh, of uh, you know, chemical something that happens to be near a poor community because the land is cheap, the poor community is disproportionately black. Uh, therefore, blacks are disproportionately adversely affected by the environmental, uh, uh, you know, impact. Uh, but it's not as if somebody sat down and said, let's go after black people and, and uh, do something to them. And there's like a gazillion things that are like that. If New Orleans floods, it's the low-lying areas that are going to be flooded. If there's a pandemic that hits us, it's the vulnerable communities that are more likely to suffer the morbidity and mortality uh, hit from the pandemic. Um, If there's a test for who gets into the high school and some households are disadvantaged with respect to preparing their kids to take the test, et cetera, this is not the same thing as that other thing. And conflating the two of them leads to confusion and error uh, in terms of how we how we respond. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but that's what I heard. That was your usual beautiful job. And yes, exactly. There is no agency, as some sophisticated people might put it, in what you just described. There is a disproportionate impact, but the idea that that means that society is racist. That's an interesting stretch. It's something you can imagine an artist trying to get across. It's something you imagine philosophers would discuss. But the idea that that's the way we ordinary people are going to talk about these things means that you and I say solutions to the sorts of problems you just described, such as not enough black kids in the school that requires a test. And there are going to be solutions to it. That solutions to it are not going to be about, for example, getting rid of people like that kid in Buffalo or changing hostile racist attitudes. There's a difference. Now, of course, there's going to be some sort of nexus. There's going to be some sort of bleed in that you might say white people don't care enough about black people to make sure this doesn't happen. Okay, but that's too much of a stretch to justify calling both of those things racism. It is not racism that keeps a certain amount of black kids in New York City from Stuyvesant High School, not in any sense that anybody would have recognized in the way the word was used 70 years ago. And I don't think that we've advanced on that. And it also means that viscerally, you think of a racist and you think, well, that's a terrible person, like the kid in Buffalo. Then we talk about something called systemic racism, and it puts your same fist up in the air. Society is racist, and you're thinking in part about white people who don't care enough. But the thing is, the white people in question can't do anything about it. You're thinking about white people walking around at a mall. They can't fix this, and yet you're supposed to have your fist up angry at them. That's not progressive. And so I just really wish that we would just call it you know, race-based inequities or something like this. I've, I've kind of scooted around on this in various things I've written over the past five years. I've never settled on anything. But I'm, I'm almost ready to stop saying systemic racism, institutional racism, and saying that those terms should be avoided. But there better be something really solid to replace them. Well, now I'm a little confused, John, because if I recall correctly, the last time we discussed the voter ID issue uh, and the Jim Crow 2.0, as President Biden put it, about the Georgia law and so forth and so on, you were saying that 
was I correct in remembering? Now, am I correct in remembering? You were saying that the Republicans were racist uh, in pr- uh, promoting such laws. So, no. Because um, it doesn't I, seem to fit your strict definition of racism that you're proposing right now. No, no, actually, I've always said, and maybe that's what it sounded like then. And I seem to have, out of the corner of my eye, I've noticed a lot of negative feedback I got from that from that episode. And I meant that it is not necessarily racist. It's nakedly pragmatic in a way that suggests that those people don't weight race issues as heavily as many other people. Okay. No, it's not racism. It's not, it's not Jim Crow. It's mean. And there's a difference, although a lot of people don't see it. Okay. Did you hear President Biden's remarks when he went to Buffalo and spoke uh, in comforting and, you know, con- con- uh, condolences and consolation of the, of the families? Yeah, I read them. Yeah. Uh, do you think that uh, he and the Democrats more broadly are, um, how do I want to put this, exploiting the opportunity which this terrible tragedy presents to discredit their political opponents by tacitly associating them with the uh, heinous act of the killer. Um, there's a piece by Gr- Glenn Greenwald that he puts out at his Substack that I read. I don't know if you saw it, uh, but he excoriates uh, not only the politicians, but also the media for quickly going from the act of this murderous racist nut who slaughtered those people in that, uh, that market in uh, Buffalo to the politics of the uh, right wing of the Republican Party who are concerned about immigration. This is Tucker Carlson, who worry that, uh, what do they call it, replacement theory, that uh, the Democrats are trying to replace, you know, Jews will not replace us, you will not replace us, this kind of racism. I think you would agree, this is racism. Uh, and uh, to, to, to use this incident to draw a line between those two. I mean, Glenn, I'll, I'll stop, but I just want to get this question on the table. Are the Dems exploiting? I'm asking you. Greenwald seems to think so. And he recalls the uh, shooting of Congressman Steve Scalise in 2017, shortly after Trump was inaugurated by a very ardent Democrat who listened to Rachel Maddow every night and was all excited about how terrible it was that Trump was in office and Republicans were bad people. And he goes out, shoots up a bunch of, uh, you know, guys playing on a baseball game on, uh, out in the park. Uh, and uh, within an inch of his life, in the case of Scalise, he's wounded. Some uh, officers, police officers were killed by this guy at the site. And Greenwald just wants to make the point. You could have said the rhetoric of the Democrats motivated the rhetoric, the anti-Trump, uh, Trump is a traitor rhetoric of uh, Rachel Maddow motivated this guy. But no one did say that. No one blamed Democrats for this nut. Why are you blaming Tucker Carlson, uh, who stridently denounces the open border, quote unquote, policies as he sees it of the Democrats and worries about the consequence of unlimited immigration across the southern border changing the demographic composition of the country in such a way as to promote the liberals' uh, political ambitions. Um, they blame Tucker Carlson indirectly for this, et cetera. I'll stop. You see what I'm trying to say? I thought it was a very clever point about the Scalise incident. And I think that what it comes down to is just frequency. If we were seeing a large number of, you know, <laughs> woolly-headed, I don't mean woolly in terms of hair, but crazy you know, left-wing people, you know, shooting up places because they've been watching Rachel Maddow, I think people would start saying that MSNBC has some blood on its hands. But instead, that's the only such incident that most of us can think of. I've often wondered why that sort of thing didn't happen more. Um, I don't want to put out any kind of model for it, but wouldn't you expect there would be more young black men pulling things like that? But but luckily, they don't. And instead, I, I think it would be safe to say that it's it's usually from the right. It's usually people who have been watching Tucker Carlson or reading the equivalent who pull these sorts of things, the manifestos that you find online, et cetera. So I think that's why nobody said anything about Rachel Maddow. If that happened six times in a year, people would start talking about how Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow need to quiet down. But there seems to be a, a right-wing problem here. But God, I want to, this is delicate. I'm going to ask you something. Yeah. Did you read the Times' piece on Mr. Carlson? A couple of weeks ago, 
And uh, I heard about it and I read part of it. I'm not sure I read every word of it. It was very long and extensive. Oh, uh, no, nobody read every word. The Times was very thorough because they had to be. They had to get it all in. And, but yeah, it was not designed to be read. But we, we all saw that. And how do you... You and I differed after the racial reckoning. And we had a whole conversation about this in terms of who we would appear with. You appeared with him. I did. As in traveling to that place where he lives, et cetera. What is your feeling about that? And I don't mean that in, com- in a confrontational way, but based on the fact that his kind of ideology, and there's no evidence that the Buffalo kid had been watching Tucker Carlson in particular, but it's the same ideology. All of this is coming from I mean, quite the contrary. Excuse me for interrupting. The Buffalo killer uh, despised Fox News uh, along with every, uh, a long list of other uh, elements of American right. culture and politics whom he despised. He was, he's way, way out there. He's a contrary okay. lunatic. But anyway, how do ahead. you feel about you were on a show with Carlson and he is promoting this great replacement idea. Where do you fit in on, on well, that? I, I don't promote the great, quote unquote, great replacement idea, which by the way is an imputation of motive to the Democratic Party comparable to the imputation of motive to the Republican Party when they stand up in state legislatures and say, we want to make sure that we have ID for people before we allow them to cast the ballot. The motive that's been imputed in that case is they want to keep black people from voting. The motive that's imputed in this case is you've got an open border. Minorities are coming across the border in numbers, in large numbers. You're hoping to change the electoral outcomes in the future because you're bringing these people in, you're importing people who you think are going to vote for you. Now, there's an argument about voter ID that you could have quite independent of motive. How do we do elections? And there can be disputes about that. And people can be on different sides of that. And they don't have to be a racist to want ballot security. And there's an argument about how do you deal with immigration? Should you be strict and have people stay in Mexico and you work very hard to build a wall on the country's border to make sure that they don't come in? Or should you let them in with generous kind of uh, amnesty-like attitude toward the country being a a safe haven for people who are seeking a better life? And besides, we're probably largely responsible either indirectly through climate change or directly through our support for uh, bad governments in Central America over the years for the fact that they're coming in the first place. There's real arguments about the border. There's independent of the motives of the people making the argument. I'm sorry to go on so long, but I have to give that preamble to say I went on Tucker Carlson because I wanted to speak to his audience. I have a message. I wanted the largest possible range of people to hear the message that I have. Tucker likes my message. He likes the fact that I'm telling black people to stand up with their shoulders back. He likes the fact that I'm saying Racism is one thing. Self-determination for black people is another. If we want true equality in the 21st century, we black people need to get busy raising our kids and taking care of our own business. Nobody is coming to save us and so forth and so on. I wanted to get my message out to his audience. That did not mean by going on Tucker Carlson that I endorsed everything he says. But I think Tucker Carlson is a a very effective voice for conservative ideas in the political discussion of the country. And no, I don't think, despite the (laughs) um, Corinne Jean-Pierre, this is the new press secretary. She uh, has been heard on MSNBC for years calling Tucker Carlson a racist. I don't think he's a racist. I think he's a conservative. I I don't think I was being a part of a right-wing cabal that wants to go out and kill black people by going on the show. If I thought that, I would have had nothing whatsoever to do with him. He is not... um, I don't know who you want to pick, Jared Taylor uh, or somebody like that, an open white supremacist. Tucker is a very effective conservative. He's the Rachel Maddow of the right. He, he puts on a show every night with an opening monologue, oftentimes that, in my opinion, is spot on in skewering conventionality around a lot of these questions. So uh, I think Tucker Carlson is a legitimate contributor to the American political discourse with an audience that wants to be respected with uh, making arguments to them that they may or may not agree with, um, but uh, something that I was prepared to participate in. Now, a lot of people advised me not to go on the show 
A, because they thought Tucker would use me for his own purposes, and B, because they thought my reputation would take a hit from having done so. I don't think it has, and I don't think he did. <laughs> I'm sorry, I get, John. No, yeah, I, get all, I get all that. Um, I'm uncomfortable in this era of our technology and our social media with when someone like him goes from being an intelligent conservative, which is what he is at heart, to being an entertainer and keeping the numbers up, especially from his side of the aisle, because what he's doing, and I'm going to sound like someone else in general, but he's being Father Coughlin. He, and notice, I'm not saying Hitler, but he's being this kind of person who stirs up actual racism, bigotry, prejudice. For example, the great replacement idea has him claiming that this they, these liberals, want these people to come in and swamp the Andy Hardy, wonder bread, real Americans. And, and of course, no one wants that. As you're getting at, this is imputing some sort of agency motive, just like saying that voter ID laws are all about not liking black people as opposed to pragmatism. There's nobody who That's wants right. to swamp wonderbred Americans. And so, yes, you might have questions about immigration law at this point, although sometimes I do wonder why a lot of these people are talking about it as if the whole situation hasn't changed vastly from what it was, say, 10 years ago. But that's another issue. But Carlson... In keeping people entertained, and I imagine part of this is having to have something to say every night, is saying the sorts of things which nine out of 10 listeners will hear and start thinking of this horde of dirty Latinos. That's the implication of it. Of course, he doesn't put it that way quite, but he's making people not like, and maybe not every Latino, but he's making people dislike a crowd of folks. And he's too smart to not feel some sense of remorse, I would think, um, in doing that. And it ends up being this whole world where people say, to an extent, we're entertainers as opposed to scholars. But when you're entertaining about that, aren't you, and this is separate from you having appeared on the show, but doesn't that revolt you somewhat? what someone like him is doing. And I knew him somewhat 20 years ago. I've seen his evolution. I just feel that it's it's irresponsible to talk that way about these things. God, I sound like James Clyburn all of a sudden, but he's stirring actual bigotry up, you know? Well, no, I, I don't agree with you about that. I think there's no doubt that some of what you said is true. That is to say, there are some people who tune into his program and become, you know, angrier, and more racist from having listened to his very effective diatribes that he yeah. starts off with. Look what the Dems are doing now. Look what the Dems are doing now. I don't doubt that that's true. Just as if a person turns to MSNBC and here's Al Sharpton or um, uh, uh, Chris Hayes or Rachel Maddow or, or the, the black woman who's uh, took uh, Joy Reid mm -hmm. uh, doesn't feel you know, uh, reinforced in their views with which you and I would disagree about the ubiquitous and uh, unrelenting knee on the neck of black Americans, so forth and so on. I'll say this. The, re the replacement theory, such as you described it, white bread is going to be overtaken by, uh, I don't know what, the taco. <laughs> it, it, it's, racist, it's racist and disgusting. But the idea promulgated by Democrats that the country is becoming a majority minority country, that white Americans are dwindling in number and by the year 2050 will be an absolute minority. The president of the United States, Joseph Biden himself, has been heard to say this. Uh, the, the idea that black people should join hands with brown people uh, as uh, underrepresented minorities and vote Democrats into office uh, all around the, the country and the, the, the crowing that Texas is going to become a purple state and it's going to become a blue state because the demographics of Texas are going to change. This is not something that Tucker Carlson imagined or made up. This is actually what Democrats are saying about their strategy for how to win elections. Okay, So if a person observes 
that um, the uh, uh, Democrats are playing race cards left and right. For example, gerrymandering congressional districts to make sure that enough minorities are inside the line to get a minority official elected to office. That's a part of the uh, larger uh, uh, political environment that we live in. Encouraging people. When, what, what happened at the Democratic candidates debate in 2020 when the moderator asked people, raise your hands if you would extend social benefits to unauthorized or undocumented immigrants. And all of them or almost all of them raised their hands and said, yes. What's that about? Is that about social policy? We want to make sure that everybody in our country is taken care of. Or is it about electoral appeal along racial and ethnic lines to a part of the constituency that you hope will vote for you because you are waving this flag of, of racial um, solidarity. But why the they stuff? Why does it have to, why, where do we get the idea that this replacement, yeah, why is it bad? Why is it that there are they coming over the hill? What, what, what's, why, why is it painted that way? Well, that, that's, that, that is problematic. I mean, that is, that is in, inviting uh, a uh, reaction from the audience that is not one that I could possibly endorse in which you say there's a conspiracy of one sort or another. I mean, the they is the Democrat. I mean, in, in, as I understand Tucker's argument, the Democratic Party wants to win elections, and that's why they are unconcerned about unauthorized immigrants entering the country because they think one day those immigrants will be uh, uh, grandfathered into the electorate and will be voting for Democrats instead of for Republicans. Now, you can say that without any reference to the race of the people involved. Um, and that the, the they in this question, in this point of view, is um, the political Democrats who are changing the character of, quote unquote, changing the character of our country in order to. Um, Feather their electoral nest. You know what? I mean, no, I mean, how's this any different than they don't want uh, black people to vote, Stacey Abrams or whatever? And that's why uh, we need to have a federal uh, John Lewis law to make sure that they, in this case, Republican racists, don't. Uh, I mean, I don't understand how the, the third person. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I was concerned about my health. My wife was getting on my case, telling me that I should be taking supplements, that I should be doing something besides the sloppy eating that I was doing and the lack of exercise that I was getting to improve my health. I wanted better gut health, more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I hated taking pills and vitamins from all those different bottles. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. Now that I've been on AG1 for three weeks, I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all of the things. What I do is every morning before breakfast, I take my dose of AG1. Uh, it's become a habit. I've incorporated it into my daily routine. It really makes me feel better. I've noticed it abets my digestion. Uh, I feel like I have more energy. It's easy to pack in my bag. I take it with me when I travel. I use it without fail every day. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than if you uh, were to buy all the supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Now, 
Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take care of yourself. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Glenn. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Glenn to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Because there are elements in the brew here that mean that stirring somebody up about this venus has a way of leading to heinous events more than stirring somebody else, stirring somebody up about voter ID laws. That doesn't seem to make anybody pick up a gun. And it, you know what the, I don't like about this partly is just, I sense a kind of a laziness on both sides. You and I both, you know, the Charles Blow kind of person who just sees racism everywhere and just writes the same column over and over. I must admit that I think of that and I think that's not trying hard enough. Boy, that's imperious of me to say, but it's what I feel. If you have a pulpit, if you only see that one thing and you are a person with two eyes and two ears and an education and a soul, is that all? I get impatient with that. And with this Carlsonian business, and this is a lot of the people at Fox, I find it, it's lazy and I hate to say this because I really don't believe in the sellout, but is it really that it makes a lot of money? I mean, for example, you and I could do something. We could. I don't think that's it. By the way, excuse me for interrupting. I don't think it's purely uh, grifterism. Uh, I, I think can, it's uh, trying to give voice not. to something that's not said anyplace else in American politics. You and I could do very well if instead of trying to think, which I think both of us try to do, we basically, you know, I could write a column every, twice a week. I could make it a kind of a watchdog thing. Some professor who's, you know, they're trying to fire. I hear some, you. Some school that's being turned upside down. Some black person writes a bad book. I could do that every time. Frankly, it would be easy. And people and you always, become the black person who denounces the other black person. You get mm -hmm. paid. You get paid very well. Mm -hmm. We could and go around doing, doing that. We could do a show together where basically we traveled around saying terrible things about people like Charles Blow on stage. And we could get rich doing that. There are people who would want to hear it. And a lot of them are not Republicans. Neither one of us would do that. It would be too easy. I wouldn't want to die having done that, even though it would make more money. Don't you want to be the best that you can be? I don't think that's the best that Tucker Carlson can be. It just seems like he's doing, he's making people jump and he notices that it works and he gets a lot of love mail for it and it keeps the ratings up and maybe it does pad his nest somewhat. I don't know. I don't know him, but. Oh, he's doing, he's doing well. There's not any doubt about that. He's the highest rated uh, cable news guy out there. And um, his star is, is, has risen substantially in uh, the last few years. I mean, where, um, you know, Sean Hannity's has uh, gone into somewhat of a decline and um, uh, Bill O'Reilly no longer uh, is on the air for, you I know, assume he has a podcast or something, but yeah, he probably does. I don't, you know, I, don't. Um, I think Tucker thinks, so he's strident. I mean, maybe one way uh, reducing uh, the thing to a word is, He's strident. He's he's uh, demagogic uh, to a certain extent. Uh, you called you said Father Coughlin. I say Coughlin. Is that wrong to say? You say Coughlin. I think I heard somebody say it that way recently. I used to think Coughlin too, but I yeah. Uh, who was uh, a radio personality back in the '30s when you know uh, uh, Hitler's uh, rise to power and whatnot, and is kind of fomenting of of, uh, of fascism and. Uh, fascist, fascistic sentiments, and we get. Ah, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to. I see why people would say that about Tucker. I think that's 
a bad rap. I think he thinks he's saving the country. I think he thinks he's taking up issues that no one else will take up. Let me give an example. Summer of 2020, George Floyd riots. Yes, there were protests. There were also riots. Uh, large numbers of black people running through American cities, burning shit down, attacking people, uh, killing each other, uh, throwing projectiles. Not only black people, obviously not only black people were involved in these protests, but you could turn on Tucker Carlson on a given night and you could see images of this thing going down that undoubtedly fueled a lot of anti-black sentiment out there in uh, the country, but that were also accurate accounts of what was going on. Uh, in Chicago, the magnificent mile of North Michigan Avenue, which used to be one after another after another high-end uh, shopping uh, experience, uh, boutiques and uh, whatever, whatever, has, has basically been uh, decimated by the behavior of the sort that Tucker began to document uh, in the summer of 2020, and which has carried forward. Um, so is that not supposed to be reported on? If, if uh, there's an understanding that the guy who drove that SUV into a crowd in Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, was uh, motivated by uh, anti-white racial animus, but there's a kind of blanket in terms of the respectable coverage of the event that de-emphasizes that aspect of it. And Tucker decides, well, uh, you know, I'm going to shout from the rooftops the fact that a black guy drove an SUV into dancing grannies um, and mowed them down. And do you know what? You can't hear a mumbling word about this at the New York Times. But do you know what? This is going on in our country and it's something that we should be concerned about. Am I, is he a racist for breaking the otherwise... Uh, uniformly adhered to taboo on that kind of reporting. Uh, the fact that his audience grows and grows tells me that people are hungry for that kind of information. Are they racist for resenting the manipulative control over Hunter Biden's laptop media, over how it is that we think about what's going on in Ukraine, over whether or not Trump was actually a Putin, et cetera? There's uh, this partisan division in the way in which information is reported, which cries out for, and if Tucker Carlson didn't exist, somebody else would come along and fill that void for a voice that says, no, wait, don't just believe what they tell you at CNN and the Washington Post. Here's another angle on the story about what's happening in our country, et cetera. So that, that's kind of how I look at it. Without endorsing, I nevertheless accept as legitimate a platform in which that kind of thing is voiced. And I'm, without endorsing, willing to go on and speak my mind uh, on such a platform because I want to appeal to the country, not just to the part of the country that uh, already agrees with, with me. I it's the best defense I got, man. It may not be adequate. You can tell I me. No, I don't disagree with anything that you said. All of those things needed to be pointed out. And if you are in the media, you have to ballyhoo somewhat. He's not going to just sit there and say it neutrally. He, I understand the entertainment part to an extent. I guess we're narrowing it down to a particular problem I have with the, you can't help but hear him as saying these swarthy hordes are coming in who don't share our values. They're going to take over. So yeah, I completely get that he's telling his audience, don't let these people, these lids, tell you that you're a racist. They're going to call you a racist every time you try to open your mouth. Yeah, I, I, I get that. that. That is something that they need to be told because people from the left do overdo that charge in a grievous fashion, sure. But to go from that to the swarthy hordes coming over the hill, when you know that people have been saying things like that since the 1700s and it never turns out to have any meaning. Tucker knows that. You know, Benjamin Franklin was saying that about Germans and I don't even need to give the other examples. It's dangerous, and it, it ends up being a signature part of what he's doing. The things that you described are important. Yeah, the Waukesha incident, it's ridiculous how people made it seem like it was the car that did it and not the man, and we never heard anything about it after about a week. Yeah, that's, that, that wasn't right. But the swarthy hordes, I can't so, get past it. So let me, let's, let me try to change the conversation here a little bit, if I may. 
away from Tucker Carlson, the personality, to the question of uh, is it good for the country that we don't have control of the border and that people come in in the thousands and tens of thousands and ultimately in the millions without authorization? So here's an argument that I don't think is a swarthy horde argument. I am an American citizen. That's a very special endowment, which I have inherited in virtue of my birth. This is my country. There are 330 million or so of us. We should get to decide what the future of the composition of our polity is going to be through legitimate democratic deliberation. That's what we elect representatives for. That's the purpose of law. What do you mean composition? Well, what I mean is who comes into the country. That that's, that's something that we can legitimately decide about. If we don't have control of our border, this is an argument, I understand that it echoes people like Donald Trump because he ran for president and got elected for president in part on this kind of argument. And I'm inviting your response because um, I think something very important is at stake for the future of the country. If we don't have control and we simply allow anyone who has the resources to get themselves to the uh, Mexican side of that border and wade across that river into the country, we will look up in 20 years, in 50 years, and find that we are a different country than we had been in ways over which we did not exert the legitimate discretion that is our inheritance as citizens of the country. And therefore, and therefore, what's going on on the border is something that we should all be upset about and we should be intervening. If it's a wall, it's a wall. If it's enhanced uh, border security forces, that's what it is. If it's sending people back to Mexico, if it's deporting, if it's changing the asylum process, that's what we should do. We need to get control of this issue. Now, I'm asking you, what's racist? about that. And the reason I ask it is because I could see African-Americans who are disproportionately exposed to perhaps the uh, adverse consequences of uncontrolled uh, immigration coming in, whether it's through the labor market or through competition and for, for public resources or whatever it is, saying, well, wait a minute, it's my country too. And um, you guys who have just assimilated my historical argument, this is African-Americans, I have a historical argument. It is my ancestors have been enslaved and then their descendants have been denied equal citizenship. And there are legacy effects of that even into the present day. And I want a social compact that takes care of those concerns, the consequences of which are diluted by the admission of unrestricted uh, people coming across the border, uh, et cetera. Um, I stumble here a little bit because I know that I'm flirting with, you know, some of the unacceptably racist kind of language that other people are inclined to use. But uh, what concerns me is that the ability to deliberate for us over the legitimate question of what's going to be the composition of the polity is being washed away by all of this accusatory uh, um, uh, kind of commentary, which says, if I want there to be a border, uh, I, I don't want any brown people to come into the country. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying we can stumble forward as a nation in terms of uh, who uh, uh, are incorporated among us, or we can deliberate and decide as a nation as to who are incorporated among us. Other countries do that. For example, they have qualifications to, uh, about immigration, which they uh, regulate uh, whom they're prepared to admit, grant visas to, and ultimately extend citizenship to, based upon the extent to which those people who are the beneficiaries of that largesse uh, are uh, thought to be adding positive value to the collective enterprise of the of the country. Is that really a racist stand to say that I want to exercise that kind of discretion over who comes into the United States of America? Of course. It's unideal to have people wading in. Sure, you want control. But I sense a subtext in what you're saying that there are certain people who we would decide we don't want to come. And I know that you're not saying that 
what would decide that is there being Latinos? That's not remotely what you're saying, but who are the ones who would be turned away who get in otherwise? Or are you saying that it's just that there are too many, which seems to no longer actually be the case? What, what, what criteria are not being applied? Well, in the first instance, you violated the law of the country by entering without authorization. We have a process here to vet your asylum claim. We call it asylum. It's asylum. It's not general uh, openness to anybody who wants to come. You have to have a legitimate claim. We're prepared to vet it. Um, and then we're going to set the rules about how we vet it. But the first order of business is orderly, legally authorized entry to the country. So who I don't want to come, anybody who doesn't have my permission to come. Okay. Beyond that, if you were to ask me, and uh, there are more people who want to come than there are, quote unquote, places for them to come, and we have to decide how many places we want to make available for people to come, I would say people who are going to come and be a dependent on the rest of us for their support are less desirable than people who want to come and who are going to start businesses or bring skills or things of this kind. So I'm, for one, this is not asylum. I'm not talking about asylum now. I'm talking about discretionary admission of people who are not le legitimately claiming to be seeking asylum, which claims will be vetted in our courts according to our rules. I'm talking about other people who want to come into the country uh, but are petitioning for permission to do so. And yeah, I don't see any reason why I can't distinguish amongst them based upon what it is I think they're going to add to the uh, net um, social benefit of, of the rest of the society. Now, don't you think that it would be more citizenly for certain highly influential media hosts to say something like this in perhaps punchier, more accessible language than to depict these people as swarthy hordes who are trying to push their way in, that they can just break down the dam and they're going to change the nature of our country because, and the implication is clear, they speak Spanish and they have different food. And there's always this overhanging sense that they don't really want to work, that there's something wrong with them, that they're not what we real Americans are. Is that necessary? Because that's not what you're saying. No, yeah. that, of course, is not what I'm saying. They're speaking Spanish or having different food is uh, completely irrelevant. Now, what did Donald Trump say when he came down the escalator? Mexico is not sending us our best. They're sending murderers and rapists and uh, drug dealers. Uh, and I assume some are good people. Something words to that effect. That's not what I'm saying. I am not categorically imputing drug dealership or whatever. But if you turn to Fox News, you will see, uh, amongst other things, a litany of reports about people who have entered the country, committed crimes, been deported, and then come back into the country by walking across the border and committed more crimes. That actually does happen. I don't want those people in my country. I'm not saying that they are all or even most or even a significant minority of, um, of the people who are coming across, but I'm saying there are such people and I don't want them in my country. You know, that there's a little sideline on that, and I almost hate to say it, but it needs to be said. The good word now is that Trump called Mexicans rapists. That has always been a willful misinterpretation of what he said. He said they send us the rapists among them, and I think it's a reasonable assumption that he thinks that they're rapists among all nations and, and people. The idea that what he said is that to be Mexican is to be a rapist is an athletic interpretation of what he said, that Agreed. people seem to almost enjoy lobbing around. I don't think anybody actually heard it that way. Or if they did, we need to listen to each other more closely, even when it means listening to Donald Trump. They're rapists. He didn't mean that all Mexicans are rapists. I, I, found, I always found that to be a lapse, but still. Yeah, I understand completely what you're saying. I don't know how many of these criminals have come in. I mean, is it static? Is it just the occasional tale? Or is it a significant percentage? I don't know. And yes, it's not right that the second you have anything to say about immigration except let them in, you're a bigot. That's the same sloppy reasoning that creates people thinking that Donald Trump stood there on that escalator and called Mexicans rapists. But still, I sense a, a lack of civic responsibility in the way some people talk about these things, where people like this Buffalo guy 
can hear. Again, he didn't happen to listen to Tucker Carlson in particular, but that whole way of discussing things, 4chan, et cetera. I don't know. It worries yeah. me. But. Let's talk about something else. What else is on your on your mind these days? Um, well, for example, you got the Bradley. How's that? The Bradley Prize. I, uh, along, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the gentleman's name. He's a Chinese uh, uh, anti-communist uh, dissident who uh, has escaped from communist China and come to the United States. Oh, gosh, I wish. Ai Weiwei? Uh, yeah, that's, I, I, I think mm-hmm. that is it. And I apologize. I apologize for not remembering his name. And Wilfred McClay, uh, who's a historian at uh, Hillsdale College now, um, uh, conservative and and myself were the recipients of the 2022 Bradley Prize, a prize that honors outstanding contributions to American exceptionalism, quote unquote. That's how they how they frame it. The Bradley Foundation. It's based in Milwaukee. It's a conservative foundation. Uh, they, there's a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar cash award, unrestricted. That comes along with the prize. Thank you very much, Bradley Foundation. Appreciate that. I really do. Um, and um, there was a big gala um, at the National Building Museum in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, which is a magnificent structure with like uh, 60 foot ceilings and, you know, uh, uh, Greco Roman columns and, you know, just gorgeous, a gorgeous place. Uh, it was uh, a well-produced uh, confab. If you go to the Bradley Foundation website, anybody, you can find uh, some video clips of uh, the award uh, presentation ceremony, including the speeches that were given by the recipients. I gave a speech called Why Does Racial Inequality Persist? And I, I talked about the stuff that I talked about. Stay tuned, followers of The Glenn Show, because we're going to put up some uh, video content from from that event. Um, I was uh, fed it uh, as one of the recipients. You know, you get a medal. You know, you, I, in my tuxedo. You know, I, I, I don't wear a tuxedo every day, or even every week, or even every year. So it, it was an interesting experience. My daughter, Tamara Elaine Chrysler, and her her daughter, Faith Noel Chrysler. Uh, we're present to uh, give some family support. Uh, a little video clip introducing my speech. I don't know, maybe it was three minutes or so of biography with photographs of Glenn Lowry, born on the south side of Chicago, educated at Northwestern University and at MIT, professor at Harvard and at the University of Michigan and so forth, and author of the whatever they, they kind of introduced me and my family, my late wife. Uh, and life partner until she passed away in 2011. Linda Datcher Lowry, Dr. Linda Datcher Lowry was remembered. Uh, a booklet was printed up in which there were little essays of thanks. And I gave a tribute to my father, my late father, Everett Lowry, to my mentor, my late colleague, uh, Thomas Schelling, and to my, uh, my wife and life partner and mother of our two sons, Linda, uh, in the booklet. Um, and um, I received uh, congratulatory uh, gestures from the um, from the 400 guests who were invited by the Bradley Foundation to this gala, um, and I I was uh, I was impaired actually. My back pain got so bad that I needed a wheelchair to take me around oh. at the reception. So I'm I was sure. pretty stationary, but yeah, people came over, many people, dozens and dozens of people to our table. At one point, my granddaughter, Faith, asked me, Poppy, aren't you getting tired of people congratulating you? Because I'm getting tired because <laughs> I'm getting tired for you of the handshakes and the whatnot. So it was, you know, uh, it was a wonderful experience uh, for uh, your humble servant here. And uh, everybody was uh, was uh, celebrating my my. Life's work, a little bit like that Festriff uh, conference back here at Brown that you attended a few weeks before. Very interesting. That must have been extremely gratifying. <laughs> so it's a uh, contrast. I, I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say it's that kind of treatment when it happens is um, 
I think of the contrast that you get when you you encounter other kinds of people. Like I actually, um, I did a Times column. I think it's the last one where I talk about giving a talk at a bookstore. And um, this is about 20 years ago. I am pretty sure that the bookstore was politics and prose in D.C. I didn't say this in the Times. And um, I did my usual talk back then about education and how racism can create an acting white sentiment. And I probably said something about the deindustrialization thesis. I had a kind of a stump speech that I did back then. And um, a white woman, bookstore clerk, came up to me. I would, if you were going to cast her as an actress, it's, it's Diane Keaton and, um, let's say, Diane Keaton and Mary Steenburgen, an actress who I've always liked, they have a love child. It, 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 that love child is, you know, somewhere around 50. That's the clerk. You know, nice, mild-mannered person. Comes up to me with this sheepish expression on her face, and she says, Professor McWhorton, I, I wanted to give you something. And I said, okay, what? what um and she hands me a book by Walter Mosley. I forget which one it was. I think it may have been Devil in a Blue Dress. And, uh, she's, and she's got this look on her face. And I don't describe this too much in the Times piece, but it was this look of pity. She thought there was something wrong with me. It was, I'll never forget <laughs> her kind of like, like that. And she gives me this book and she says, I thought you should read this. This is something, <laughs> something you might like to read. This is this is a gift from the store. And then she says this look, she kind of the look on her face was kind of Alice Ghostly, for those of you who remember that character actress. And I was um I was offended. I didn't let her know. I knew that she thought she was one, healing me, and two, she worried about what my influence might be on the public. And so she wanted to teach me what real black people go through, and or she wanted to teach me that all black people are not hard leftists of the kind who I was arguing against in the talk, which Walter Mosley is not. And so I made sure to never read any Walter Mosley until two weeks ago, because I was just so offended that she would think I needed to be healed in that way, in that look on her face. So it's fun to be congratulated and people shaking your hand, especially, I'm sure you've gone through things kind of like that, where you're giving your all, you're trying your best, and here comes this person who can only see you as this poor, broken baby bird because she's so caught up in a single way of looking at things and thinks that it's her duty to promulgate that. And it's too bad because I had no idea how good Walter Mosley was. I read more nonfiction than fiction in general. So I kind of conveniently never got around to him. And I just read um, the, the Right Mistake. And goodness, that was one of the best books I've ever read. He is a titanic artist. And... I was just blown away by the way he gets in how regular black people feel about things, which is one part left and one part right. Nobody's quite sure what to do. He writes a whole novel where people are just confronting that. And it's not Tavis Smiley. It's not Candace Owens. It's something kind of in between. Yes, a lot of it is kind of like the, the things that, that we do. And I really, I really enjoyed seeing all that set to... Perfect pitch black English. That's another thing. He, he gets uh, the language exactly right. It was really, really good. It was a really good piece of work. And now I want to read everything he ever wrote. But what kept me from taking it up earlier was this person and that look on her face. And I'm sure that she didn't intend it. But what she created in me was resistance. You know, there's this idea that if you're saying the wrong black thing, a white person can look down on you as not a real black person. I don't think she understood how egregious that feels on the other end. Yeah. And this, she struck me as a very pacific, mild-mannered person. She wasn't being abusive. But I'll never forget that look on her face. And it made Walter me not see Walter Mosley. Devil in a Blue Dress is the one that I've read and that I know it was made into a film. Easy Rollins is his uh, film noir <laughs> Black, uh, a private investigator type guy who's go, uh, bouncing around L.A. Uh, and the artistry that the, the, the uh, writing craft that you most admire is his ability to capture perfect pitch, how it is that black people actually talk to each other, Amazing. as well as to convey the complexity of black people's thinking about social and political issues where there's always a ambiguity and 
you know, two sides to the thing and, and, and we're not just, you know, one dimensional. Uh, he's not, he, he passed away, didn't he? I was not aware that he was dead. Um, okay. I'm going to do what well, my I, students I, I, do. I'm going to check yeah. because we can now look and find these things on our phones. I know in real time, we can do it while we're talking here. Well, you notice how most... students now can just look stuff up? I, I enjoy that. Let's see. And did he ever win a Pulitzer for his uh, uh, or National Book Award, anything like that? I know he got the National Book Award. Um, he is not dead. Oh, I'm so glad. And, <laughs> and, and, and forgive me, Walter, if you ever hear this, man. I didn't mean to write you off quite that. I, 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 can, I can relate. What year was he born? He's 70. And oh, he got, um, got a Grammy, apparently. NAACP Image, National Book Foundation Medal. No, he hasn't gotten yeah. the big, big, big stuff. NAACP Image Award, yes. but um, no, not not what you would expect. Come to think of it, it's not right. Yeah. He should get he should get more. Yeah, well, maybe he's got some time for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, John, what do you say we call it a, a conversation here? I think we're done for today. Yeah, I think we're done for today. What did you think of Buffalo? Right, quick. What made, well, it was what horrific. Did it make I thought it was horrific. I mean, without any question, I thought it was it was horrific. Uh, I, you know, let, let's just face the facts. Nuts get guns and they shoot up places. That's going on much too often in America, and uh, the, it's a deep issue. Um, you can talk about the guns. It's a big debate. Second Amendment, et cetera, et cetera. We're, we're going to be fighting that one for a while. Assault weapons ban, uh, background checks, and so forth. And so on. I'm for sensible gun uh, regulation. I'm not. And, and uh, extremist about that. On, on the other hand, you do have the Second Amendment, and it's a big political issue. Mental health, I think, uh, I was intrigued by uh, the subterranean political tug of war going on around the mental health dimension of this issue. I mean, clearly, that dude had some issues that were being signaled loudly by his behavior prior to what he did and somehow, quote unquote, the system of uh, mental health service delivery and regulation of people who exhibit these kinds of pathological, uh, 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 you know, deformity of their thinking failed. Now, some conservatives wanted to say in order to quell the and the tendency to impugn the white supremacy uh, ideology with the blood uh, on the hands of the killer here and wanting to associate it to, they say, no, it's a mental health issue. Some uh, progressives wanted to downplay the mental health issue because they wanted to be able to talk as the president did about gun control and about white supremacy. So, the issue, the real issue, how do we actually minimize the likelihood that this will happen again, to some degree was captive to the political tug of war about how an incident like this can be used either to uh, attack my political enemy or how I have to defend myself against such an attack in the way in which I respond. And that really did strike me. I want to just say one further thing. You said the frequency of incidents should gauge the extent to which we emphasize the ideological motivation for such incidents and in that you think the right-wing killing is more frequent than the left-wing killing, if I can put it that way. And therefore, we should be more concerned about whether or not uh, ideology espoused by a Tucker Carlson leaks out into uh, some deranged mind and leads to violence than we would be an ideology espoused by a Rachel Maddow or Joy Reid leaks out and does the same. And I just don't know whether or not the claim, the empirical claim, right-wing violence is more frequent, is true. Whether or not the shooter in Buffalo and the shooter in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Dylan Roof, um, are uh, happening more often. These are racially motivated violent acts that take people's lives than uh, cops that are shot in Dallas by a guy motivated by Black Lives Matter type rhetoric. But I just don't know whether it's true. It's something that should be investigated. And more to the point, just in, in closing, 
One, is it true? And if it is true, which I suspect it is, then to really be able to pronounce upon it, we would have to we would have to explain why. Why is it that it's more likely to come from the right if it is? And so I know I'm flying a little blind here, but it just I am moved by the fact that the Dylan Roof seems much more likely than whoever it was who shot Scalise. There's something about being a young male. Maybe it has something to do with the fact that what's coming from the right wing urges you to go after people who are perceived as inferior. Whereas what a Rachel Maddow might be saying is the scourge is somebody who has a gun or somebody who is not an inferior in that sense. I'm just guessing that there might it might have something to do with that kind of dynamic. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a rich issue. All right. Well, um, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm feeling that I gave my uh, detractors a lot of ammunition in this conversation. And I, I fault you for that, John, for asking the wrong questions. I'm sorry, but I had to this time. All right. Until we meet again in two weeks, uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for everything. Have a good one, Glenn. Hi, it's Glenn. This is an, an addendum to the post with John McWhorter in which I could not recall the name of Chen Guangjin, who is the Chinese dissident recipient of a 2022 Bradley Prize. So I'd like you to amend the post with me apologizing for not recalling how to pronounce his name, Chen Guangjin. Thank you.